It is time for November birthday shoutouts for my Patreon supporters. I know a lot of different podcasts go about thinking their Patreon supporters different ways, but I love birthdays, so I thought doing happy birthday shoutouts would be the best way to do that. If you're wondering how to get me your birthday on Patreon, at the beginning of each month, I start a discussion thread. Just join that, leave your name in the comments, and you will get your birthday shoutout. I want to say a very happy birthday to Amanda, Brenda, Bree, Brooke, Christina, Crystal, Daisy, Ellen, Hope, Lauren, Leah, Madeline, Mandy, Mariah, Marie, Michelle, Norrell, Raven, Shelly, Tracy, True Crime Nana, Mason, Tammy, Preeti, Bobby Joe, Randir, Heather, Jackie, Elizabeth, Amy, and Megan. Have a very happy birthday, everybody, and thank you so much for your support over on Patreon. Happy birthday! When Lauren DeMolo went missing in 2020, her family, friends, and even total strangers came together to search for the missing mother. Confusing clues were uncovered and many names were brought up, but all leads have failed to tell the family where Lauren is. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines and to another episode. Behind the scenes, I am working very hard to get the 12 days of Crime Lines prepped for December, but I will be taking a little break the first weekend of December to go to Atlanta, Georgia for a live show. It's actually one night of three live shows, and I'm looking forward to it since there are so many people involved, and I do know there are a few tickets left. We have Already Gone, Pretend Radio, The Defense Diaries, Murder She Told, True Crime Cases, Our True Crime Podcast, Corpus Delicti, Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet, True Consequences, Santa Maybe, Southern Gothic, and Music City 911 joining me for this one night. Ticket info is in the show notes. Let's get into today's episode. The two major sources for this episode were the reporting by Caitlin Greennockle with the Fort Myers News Press, and the podcast Complicit. The hosts of Complicit started their podcast to advocate for Lauren's case. And while I fully understand podcasters being protective of their work product, the hosts, Caitlin and Hillary, are first and foremost concerned with getting word out about Lauren's case. And they were not just open to me using them as a source, but you are going to hear an interview at the end of this episode with one of the hosts to get a unique look at the behind the scenes of the podcast. So a major thank you to Complicit for all of their support in me getting this episode out and getting out the word about Lauren's disappearance. But even after you hear my episode on this case, you have to know that Complicit has 10 episodes plus an eye-opening Q&A with Lauren DeMullo's father, so you know they are going to have more than I can cover in 50 minutes. So go ahead and as you're listening to this, go subscribe to Complicit in your favorite podcast app. This case is about the disappearance of Lauren DeMullo from Cape Coral, Florida. Lauren had grown up in New York and Maryland with her sister Cassie, who was just a year younger than her. 
Her father, Paul, got custody of both of the girls after he divorced their mother. Paul did remarry, and Lauren's siblings grew to include her step-siblings as well as half-siblings. Lauren's mother, who the podcast Complicit has chosen to call Anne, moved to Florida and had limited contact with the girls for several years. She, too, went on to have more children, two daughters, as well as two sons. When Lauren and her sister Cassie were in their late teens, they wanted to reestablish contact with their mother, which Paul was completely open to. After rebuilding their relationships and getting to know their brothers and sisters more, Lauren and Cassie, in their early 20s, decided to move to Florida. This was the first time since they were children that they lived near their mother, and they were also getting close to their siblings down there, especially their sister, Lindsay. Lauren lived some of the time in Cape Coral and some of the time in West Palm Beach, the two cities being about three hours apart. In August 2014, Lauren had a daughter with her boyfriend at the time, though she lost custody early on due to her drug use. Lauren had been in a pretty serious car accident as a teenager. For pain management, she was prescribed a medication that had oxycodone in it. In spite of Lauren having at least two risk factors for developing an addiction to the medication, for one thing, her mother was an alcoholic, and genetics play a significant role in addiction. And two, she was a teenager. The majority of those with substance use disorder were introduced to drugs or alcohol as an adolescent. Like a lot of people with an addiction to opioids, Lauren started with a legal prescription and then moved on to illicit drugs. After Lauren had her daughter, she went to rehab and was able to get custody back. But then she relapsed in 2018 and her daughter was taken out of her care again. She was placed into a kinship placement with her paternal grandmother. Lauren talked to her family and accepted that she had put herself in this position to lose her daughter, but she was going to get clean again and stay that way so she could regain custody. So Lauren started what is a very difficult path. She was working on her recovery while also complying with every step the Department of Children and Family Services required of her. That included random drug testing. She had to also prove she could support herself and her daughter, so she was working two jobs to make sure that could happen. Though she lived with her mother, Anne, and her stepfather, Victor, for a little while, she was soon back on her feet and got an apartment with her boyfriend, Gabriel Pena, who went by Gabby. Two jobs, clear drug tests, taking advantage of the time she had with her daughter, which included video chats in between the in-person visits, and having an apartment with the lease in her name. These were all steps towards reunification. A big part of Lauren's recovery process was focused on meditation and spirituality. She was very much into positive energy, both putting it out into the world and also surrounding herself with it. But there was one area that definitely wasn't all positive vibes, and that was Lauren's relationship with her boyfriend, Gabby. 
The two lived together, but they would have short breakups where one of them would leave the apartment only to reconcile, often just a few days later. Gabby was a friend of the family. He worked with Lauren's stepfather, Victor, and even lived in Victor and Anne's spare room before. When Lauren and Gabby started dating, most found Lauren to be uncharacteristically private about her relationship. They were dating a while before all of her family even knew they were together. Lauren did open up a bit in 2020 after the two had been together on and off for around two years. Lauren texted her sister Lindsay once that spring about the relationship, saying that she loved Gabby, but he was miserable and the relationship was over. But then they were together again a few weeks after that. Lauren had also confided in her maternal aunt Sue about these relationship issues, and Sue would offer her a place to stay if she needed some space from the arguments. Lauren would be grateful, but would turn her down. Lauren was 29 years old, and it makes sense that she wanted to prove she could do it herself. At this point in the relationship, Lauren had not told the family anything other than that she and Gabby would fight, but she didn't mention anything about the arguments turning physical. That was until May 22, 2020, when Lauren told her father that Gabby had put his hands on her. That day had been a very hard one for Lauren, physically and emotionally, because she had just gone to the doctor for an abortion. Gabby had not gone with her like he said he would, and he also didn't pay for it like he also said he would. So Lauren was home recovering when Gabby got back from work. She was resting and asked him if he could bring her a bowl of soup. For some reason, this set Gabby off and he got angry with her. And Lauren sent her father, Paul, photos of the aftermath, which included bruises on Lauren's arm and neck. Paul's instinct as a father was to get on a plane from his home in California and fly immediately to Florida to see what was going on and to help Lauren. But this was May 2020, and if we can put ourselves back there, we were being told not to travel unless absolutely necessary in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19. There was so much uncertainty back then about what was happening and how this was going to progress. Since Lauren had other family in the area, including her mom and stepfather just down the street, Paul stayed put, but he encouraged Lauren to go to the police. But she did not. Lauren did confide in a friend about this abuse as well, saying she needed help getting out of the situation. But she said that this was the first time it had ever happened. The family would later learn that this was unlikely to be true. Lauren had become friendly with those at the 7-Eleven convenience store across the street from her apartment. Those casual friends said that they believed that Gabby and Lauren's relationship had been physically abusive for a while based on things Lauren had said. And it was definitely controlling. 
Lauren said that Gabby would choose her clothes and her makeup if she was going out, and he would sometimes take the router with him when he would leave the apartment, knowing that Lauren's phone only connected through Wi-Fi. It also sounded like Lauren may not have been getting the help with finances she needed from Gabby, who was living in her apartment. A friend told the family that Lauren complained that Gabby would often disappear when it came time to pay the bills. Meanwhile, she was working two jobs to keep up with the rent, though she did lose one of those jobs early in the pandemic due to cutbacks. The state of the relationship was a major source of stress, and now Lauren has lost one of her jobs and she has had a pregnancy termination, followed by an alleged physical assault. That stress was compounding, and in the week and a half after her abortion, those close to Lauren noticed that she was acting strangely, mostly expressing paranoia. Lauren had complained that her next-door neighbor was talking badly about her and she could hear it through the walls. One time, either she or Gabby had even called the police about it, but when they arrived, that neighbor wasn't even home at the time. Lauren's brother, who lived down the street with Anne and Victor, had Lauren run up to his car once saying that people were after her. Another time, he was driving by her apartment complex and saw Lauren out on the lawn, apparently meditating, which wasn't odd. But there was a maintenance crew trying to mow around her, and she just kept sitting there. And then on June 1st, Lauren's sister Cassie got a call from one of their other sisters. She said she had talked to Lauren that morning, and Lauren said people were after her. She had no car and no driver's license, being too anxious to drive after that car accident in her teens. And Lauren said she needed someone to come get her. Obviously, with this odd behavior, there was concern that Lauren had relapsed. But she had been randomly drug tested by Children and Family Services, and no one had heard anything about a failed test. Lauren was actually on track to get custody of her daughter back within the next few months if she stayed on the right path. After hearing about Lauren's possible paranoia on June 1st, Cassie tried to call her. Lauren didn't answer. Other people tried to call her, but no one could reach her that whole day. Cassie ended up calling the police, and they said that Lauren was not out of touch long enough to be considered missing, but they did take down Cassie's phone number. Later that evening, the police called Cassie to let her know that Lauren was in the hospital on a psychiatric hold. What had happened was that at some point in the morning, Lauren had walked to her mother's apartment, which was just a few minutes' walk away. She left a letter and a picture on the table and then just walked out. The letter was addressed to her daughter, who was five years old at this point, and the picture was of the two of them. This note, it could be interpreted as suicidal, though it wasn't blatantly so. 
In it, Lauren apologized about not being the mom her daughter deserved. She expressed her love for her daughter and said she was Lauren's angel, and Lauren would be her angel always looking over her, even if she wasn't there. The letter was concerning knowing it was coming from someone who appeared to be struggling with their mental health. But if Lauren was paranoid and thought someone was after her, she may have been talking about not being around in the sense that something might happen to her, not that she was planning to do something to herself. Or Lauren wrote this because she wasn't sure she was going to get custody back. Though she was on track for that, her daughter's grandmother had decided to fight to retain custody rather than supporting reunification. This grandmother had more resources, particularly financial, to fight in court, and Lauren may have been worried in that moment that her rights could be terminated. After leaving this letter at her mother's apartment, she then walked to Four Freedoms Park, which was directly across the street. Lauren went to this park almost every day where she would meditate and often just sit by the shore of the Bimini Basin. But Lauren was not at the park meditating this day. While at the park, Lauren was acting erratically and jumped in the water and started swimming like she was trying to get away from someone. A person at the park, concerned for her safety, called the police. When they arrived with EMTs, Lauren was on the beach, but she panicked when she saw them and went back into the water and started swimming away. The police got her out of the water, and Lauren was talking about people being after her and that she was hearing voices. So they took her to the hospital where she was involuntarily held under the Baker Act. Lauren was diagnosed with brief psychosis, and they believed it was triggered by a hormonal imbalance after her abortion. They told her father that it was not schizophrenia, and she was expected to recover from this. The hospital did do a drug test, and it came back clear against all hard drugs. The test was performed three days into her stay, though, and I believe it was a urine test, not hair follicle. Some drugs would have been clear from her urine within three days, but not all. Lauren was released on June 8th, feeling a lot more stable. They did give her a prescription that she dropped off at the pharmacy. Victor, her stepfather, gave Gabby the money to go pay for the prescription, but according to Lauren's Aunt Sue, Gabby never got it. On June 13th, Cassie went out to visit with Lauren. She wanted to check in and make sure her sister was doing okay, and she said that Lauren was her usual happy self, and that Lauren and Gabby were getting along great that day. They spent the day at the beach together, and everything was just nice. But the next day, Lauren called her sister Lindsay early in the morning, around 6 a.m., and said she wanted to see how Lindsay was doing. Lindsay said she was fine and asked how Lauren was. Lauren said she was good, and then they got off the phone with Lindsay a little confused. It was out of character for Lauren to call her so early in the morning like that, but then for there to be no apparent reason to call, it seemed odd. 
The next day, on Monday, June 15th, Gabby called Lauren's father, Paul, in California. This was the first time Gabby had ever called Paul. The two had never met since Paul had not been to Florida in about two years at that point, and the pandemic had ruined his plans to go in 2020. Gabby said he was calling because Lauren was having another episode, and she was talking about aliens and the devil. It's unclear why Gabby called Paul, who was clear across the country, and not Anne or Victor, who he knew well and lived right down the road. Paul asked to speak to Lauren, and when he got Lauren on the phone, he asked her what's going on. She said she didn't know what was going on, but instead of talking about devils and aliens, she said something wasn't right, and she talked about how Gabby would leave for a few days and then come back. She said she was fine, but then said she felt someone had been giving her something. At that point, Gabby got back on the phone. Because no one had picked up Lauren's prescription for the antipsychotic medication at the pharmacy, they couldn't try medication at home first. So Paul told Gabby that if Lauren was acting paranoid again, she needed to be in the hospital, and he suggested Gabby call the police. And that's what Gabby did. Lauren was admitted again on June 15th. Her stay this time was shorter, and she was released by the morning of the 18th. On that day, Lauren was going around town filling out job applications. In addition to having lost one job due to the pandemic, she lost the second one when she missed a lot of work due to her hospitalizations. With the economic uncertainty of the restaurant industry, Lauren felt a little dejected, but she was applying pretty much anywhere in town that was looking for help. That same day, a maintenance man said he also saw Lauren. When she came by, one of the complexes he worked at, not asking about a job, but rather if they had any open apartments. All she said was she needed a new place because she was trying to get out of a bad situation he told her she'd have to talk to the front office people. That evening, just before 6.30, Lauren talked to Cassie about her financial situation over the phone, and she was worried about her job loss. They talked for a few minutes, and Cassie reassured Lauren that they would work it out. They would talk the next day, and Cassie could help her figure out how to apply for unemployment benefits. Lauren seemed to feel a little bit better by the end of the call. The next day, Friday, June 19th, we have to rely on some witnesses as to Lauren's movements. Some of those witnesses would later be suspects in Lauren's disappearance, so don't consider the sightings to be confirmed. But we'll get into the specifics on the suspects later. The first point on Friday we have is from Gabby. He got up to leave for work around six in the morning. He said Lauren was still in bed, so he kissed her goodbye and left. Another witness, who was the same maintenance man who Lauren asked about an apartment the day before, said he saw her walking towards her apartment coming from the direction of Four Freedoms Park. He put the time around 8.30 in the morning, which was in line with Lauren's routine of going to the park to meditate. Another man named Josh said Lauren walked by his apartment around 10 a.m. 
They saw each other, waved, and Lauren kept going. He lived on the other side of Bimini Basin from the park, which really wouldn't have been a long walk between Lauren's apartment and his apartment. This would be the last sighting of Lauren, but like I said, let's not call it confirmed just yet. When Gabby got home from work that night, it was pretty late. Lauren's stepfather, Victor, dropped him off after they had worked a double shift with the flooring company. So this would put him getting home between 9 and 10 at night. Victor told the Complicit podcast that Gabby was in a good mood during the workday, saying that he and Lauren had talked the night before and things were going to work out. But then Gabby mentioned on the drive home that he hadn't heard from Lauren all day when they were usually in touch while he was at work. Gabby would sometimes leave his phone in the work van, in which case Lauren would call Victor's phone. Victor said Lauren hadn't called him either. When Gabby got into the apartment, Lauren wasn't there. Gabby called Lauren's father, Paul, to let him know that Lauren wasn't home and he didn't know where she was. Paul was not alarmed at this point and suggested that maybe she had gone to the store or to her mom's place. He suggested that Gabby check a few places first and then have Lauren call him when she got in. When Paul didn't get a call by the next morning, he called Gabby back. Gabby said Lauren hadn't come home all night, but he was at work at that moment and he would have to call Paul back later. Paul talked to Lauren's sister Cassie and she called the police to ask for a wellness check on Lauren's apartment. An officer went over there and knocked, and while someone peeked through the blinds, they didn't answer the door. Because the police didn't have probable cause to enter, there was nothing more they could do. That night, not having heard from Lauren or Gabby, Paul called Gabby again. Gabby said he did check a few places for Lauren, but couldn't find her. Paul said okay and reminded Gabby to tell Lauren to call him right away when she got in. Gabby said he wasn't going to be home that night because he was going to stay at a friend's house. So Paul was getting some mixed messages from Gabby here. Gabby seemed worried enough on Friday night to call Paul right away when he saw that Lauren wasn't home. But then he wasn't worried enough nearly 24 hours later to even stay home and see if Lauren made it back. The following day was Father's Day, and Paul knew he would hear from Lauren if she was able to call. They were incredibly close. So when Lauren didn't call, Paul called Gabby and told him they needed to file a missing persons report. Meanwhile, Lauren's sister Cassie had called Victor and their mom and asked them to file a missing persons report but they seemed to think that it was an overreaction. Victor did agree to go to Lauren's apartment to look around, and he said everything looked normal except Lauren and her purse weren't there. But that's all that was missing. Lauren had been gone for at least two nights, but didn't take so much as a toothbrush with her. Paul pushed Gabby into filing this missing persons report. Gabby first told Paul that he called the police to come out to take the report, but no one showed up. So Paul called the police station to ask when they would be going out. And according to what Paul told the Complicit podcast, 
The police said no call had been made to them. So Paul called Gabby back and made it clear that he was not asking Gabby to file the report. He was telling him to do it, and Paul wanted the case number within the hour. And this is another reason you need to listen to Complicit. You can listen to me tell you about this conversation, or you can listen to the first episode of Complicit and hear Paul tell it. And when you hear the tone of his voice, you will realize why Gabby decided to go ahead and do what Paul told him to do. Gabby even wrote on the missing person's report that Paul told him to file the written report and that Paul wanted the case number. The timeline Gabby gave on the report was vague, but it did note a few points. He wrote that he and Lauren spent Thursday night at home, which is going to become important later. He then said he saw her when he went to work in the morning, and then she wasn't there when he got home late on Friday night. He hadn't heard from her since. After he filed the missing persons report, he sent Paul the case number. So the next day, Paul calls the police, and he has the case number in hand to ask what was going on with this pending investigation. He was told they couldn't do anything until Wednesday when the woman who took the report was back in the office. Now, that doesn't make any sense to anyone who has followed missing persons cases because that is not how they work, but there was some clerical issue with how it was entered into the system. So it was not immediately treated like a missing persons case, and it was not assigned to an investigator. This clerical error delayed the police response by a few more days, but it didn't stop the family from searching for themselves. On Tuesday, June 23rd, Lauren's sisters Cassie and Lindsay, along with Lindsay's fiancé Matt, all went out to Lauren's apartment. Lindsay got the key from their mother, Anne, who said she needed it back because it wasn't exactly a spare key. It was Gabby's key. After his conversation with Paul on the phone and the filing of the missing persons report on Sunday, Gabby gave Anne and Victor the key, saying that he was done and he left. When Cassie, Lindsay, and Matt all got to the apartment, they called the police to meet them there for a wellness check. Though the police didn't have probable cause to force entry before, Cassie, Lindsay, and Matt now had the key, and the intent was to just let them in. But the three decided they couldn't wait on the police, and they let themselves in to look around before the police got there. They found the apartment exactly like Victor described. Nothing was out of place except that Lauren wasn't there. They did find a cell phone next to the bed and thought it might belong to Lauren, but it was dead and wouldn't turn on. Cassie decided to hang on to it and turn it over to the police. Not finding anything, they went back out to wait for the police, and during this time, Gabby showed up. He said he was there to pick up his television. But remember, he didn't have his key anymore, so he had to have known that people were there at the apartment to let him in when he went there. They showed Gabby the phone they had found and asked him whose it was. Gabby took it, walked inside the apartment with it, and then came back out with a different cell phone, saying that one was Lauren's. 
This phone was working, and Cassie recognized it as Lauren's phone. They also checked and saw it was logged into all of Lauren's social media and email accounts. Matt, Lindsay's fiancé, said something to Gabby about how the phone he gave them wasn't the one they had found. So then Gabby went back into the apartment and Cassie followed him to retrieve the other phone. So now the family had both phones to turn over to the police. But what they didn't entirely understand was why Lauren's phone was left at home to begin with. Even though she only had Wi-Fi connection on it, she always took it with her. She used it for taking pictures and she would connect to public Wi-Fi while she was out and about. And the other question was they had just looked around the apartment and hadn't seen the phone themselves. So Gabby had either shown up with it or he knew right where it was in the apartment. This whole thing just felt off to them. The police eventually showed up to the apartment, but Cassie decided not to turn the phones over right away. She wanted to wait until they had a lead investigator on the case so that these phones didn't get lost in the shuffle. The contents of the phones would eventually be analyzed, or at least Lauren's phone would be. The other phone that was dead and wouldn't turn on didn't turn on for the police either. They couldn't get anything off of it as far as we know. Lauren's phone, on the other hand, was working, but it did have limited information. If you remember back to Lauren's first psychotic episode, she had jumped in the water at the park. Well, her phone was with her and it was lost in the basin. So she was using an old phone that only had data for the last 10 days or so. Of course, Facebook messages went back farther than that since they're not stored on the phone, but scrolling through those didn't seem to give many clues. What could be confirmed was that Lauren's phone was used on Thursday night using the Talk You app. This is one of those apps that you can use to make calls and send texts when you don't have cell service and you're relying on Wi-Fi. The text was to two men named Josh and Jose, and it asked, you guys coming? Josh was the same man who said he saw Lauren around 10 a.m. on Friday, June 19th. I mentioned the sighting wasn't confirmed, and a big part of that was because of something else on Lauren's cell phone. The last time her phone was used was on Friday, at 10 a.m., making a Facebook Messenger call to Gabby. Gabby said he didn't get the call, but the police were able to confirm the phone was connected to the Wi-Fi at Lauren's apartment when the call was made and Gabby's phone pinged at his worksite that day. So Lauren could not have been making that phone call at her apartment at the same time she was walking by Josh's home. Josh could have the time wrong, or someone else could have been using the phone at the apartment to call Gabby. Or maybe Josh was lying about what he saw. Then we have to ask ourselves, why would he lie? And... We'll get to that later because we're sticking with the timeline for now. But I do want to point out one more inconsistency that this phone puts on the table. The text to Jose and Josh indicated 
that Lauren went out on Thursday night, or at the very least had people over. Yet Gabby had said he and Lauren spent the night at home talking out their relationship problems. So this is another contradiction in the timeline. So while Cassie, Lindsay, and Matt were conducting their own search, Paul landed in Florida on the night of Wednesday, June 24th, the same day an investigator was assigned to Lauren's case. But even with the police on the case, the family didn't slow down their own searches or investigation. Paul didn't even have time to adjust to the time zone change when he and Lauren's sisters got up on Thursday to search. They met at Lauren's apartment and then walked from the apartment to Four Freedoms Park, where Lauren usually went. They spoke to people along the way to see if they had heard from Lauren or had seen anything. Over the next few weeks, they would continue these searches pretty much daily by following Lauren's known routine walking through town. And then three days into their searches on Saturday, June 27th, the family started at the apartment and walked to the park as planned. But when they got to the park, they found that there was a police search underway. There was a boat and a dive team in the water. The family was not informed about this search, but that's pretty typical since the police don't want to tip anyone off, particularly in the early days of an investigation when no one yet everyone is a suspect. So they didn't know the search was happening, and they also didn't know why the search was happening. The family was told more after the search was complete. It turned out that Lauren's purse had been found at the park back on the 20th, the day after she went missing. Because of the delay in the investigation getting launched, it hadn't been immediately connected to a missing person. Someone who was at the park that day found the purse and turned it into the park ranger. It had Lauren's wallet in it with her ID. Next to the purse were Lauren's shoes and the keys to her apartment. So that is why the police were focusing the search at the park, but they didn't find anything. In an interview with Complicit, one of Lauren's aunts said that Victor had seen Gabby in the park on the same morning that the purse was found. He said he was there looking for Lauren, but hadn't found anything. The family then continued their daily searches, often focusing on the park and then fanning out, knocking on doors, and handing out flyers. On July 2nd, Cassie, Lindsay, and Matt had been walking around for a couple of hours, getting nowhere, and decided to do another check of the park. As they walked by the shoreline area, Mark looked over at the sand and saw a red shirt lying there. Lindsay saw it and immediately knew it was Lauren's based on the lace pattern. She was with Lauren when she bought it, and Lauren wore it regularly as it was a favorite shirt. The family had been in that area multiple times over the week and a half they had been searching, and the shirt wasn't there. And here it was, lying right on top of the sand. It's not like you could have walked by and not seen it. They said it didn't look very dirty or weathered or wet. It looked like someone dropped it there and just kept walking. Based on the picture of it on the sandy beach released to the media, I do have to agree with them on what it looked like. 
The police came out to bag it as evidence and would later confirm it was Lauren's shirt. They did a sweep of the area around it, but found nothing else. There was a camera on a building that faced the area, and the police checked the footage. Lauren's family thought the shirt may have been planted there to throw the investigation off. But what the police saw was a man walking along the beach, and then he kicked the sand. He bent over and picked up the shirt before dropping it on the ground and walking away. It appeared the shirt had already been on the beach when he approached it, but it was likely buried in the sand. The family did not get to see this footage, but it did have them asking, why not pull more footage? If this man simply uncovered the shirt, it would be nice to know how it got there to start with by rewinding the film. According to the podcast Complicit, the police opted not to review additional footage. From the day Lauren went missing until the shirt was found would have been 312 hours. It would take weeks to go through all of that video footage. And that would just be that one camera when there may have been others near the park that they could also have checked. They said it was just too much to go through without having more information that would narrow down the time frame they should be looking. It was around the time the shirt was found that this case really hit the local media, and that drew out a lot of community support. The first organized search with community volunteers was held on July 7th, 2020, and it was at Four Freedoms Park. I mean, every piece of evidence found so far pointed back to the park. On the morning of the search, Lauren's stepfather, Victor, showed up to the park, talked to the family for a bit, and then left. Gabby didn't show up at all, and neither did Lauren's mother, Anne. Anne was sick at this time, and no one really expected her to be out in the park searching. She rarely left her apartment by this point, and the family has been open about Anne's struggles with alcohol and her physical health issues that were the result of long-term alcohol abuse. As for why Gabby wasn't helping the community search, Victor has said that Gabby was doing his own searches, and also that his children were visiting him at the time of the search, and he didn't want to expose them to everything going on. As the search entered the third hour, Danny, a community volunteer, decided to leave the park and go to the apartments across the street to see if anyone with a view of the park had seen anything. Though she would eventually become close with the family, at this time, she didn't know them and didn't know that those apartments were where Victor and Anne lived. She ended up knocking on their door. Victor answered, and when Danny explained why she was there, Victor said he was Lauren's father, which was a little strange since he wasn't searching the park with everyone else, and someone else who also called himself Lauren's father was searching. According to Danny, Victor told her that they were devastated that Lauren was missing and made a comment about not knowing that the search was happening which the family later found odd since he had been over there earlier. 
The search didn't uncover any additional evidence, but it did increase the media coverage, which led to a local businessman donating to the reward fund. Crime Stoppers was offering $3,000 and James Edgar added $5,000 to it. He didn't know the family, but he was moved by the case as he had a daughter the same age. Two days after this, on July 10th, Gabby gave his first public interview to Wink News. Gabby had been interviewed by the police, obviously, and he even took a polygraph. The police have not confirmed the outcome of the polygraph, but he said he passed. Though he was cooperating with the police, he hadn't been doing the public pleas for information like Lauren's family had been doing, and this was the first time he spoke with the media. Gabby told Wink News that Lauren had recently relapsed when a friend got her back into drugs, and he believed something bad had happened to her. From what Victor told the Complicit podcast, this was something Gabby had told him as well, before Lauren went missing. It was a big issue in their relationship, her drug use, though it's not clear how Lauren was passing the random drug testing from the Department of Child and Family Services. But I want you to remember that Gabby said Lauren relapsed because this story would change. In this first interview, Gabby said that since Lauren had left everything behind, it seemed unlikely to him that she was simply staying away of her own volition. He said he was worried and scared, but then followed it up with saying he wasn't really scared since he didn't do anything, but he was worried for Lauren. After this interview, the next major reporting had to do with another police search that happened on July 20th, and again, it started at Four Freedoms Park. This time, they brought in cadaver dogs. Shortly after the search began, a dog brought them across the street and to the front door of an apartment. It was Victor and Anne's place. The dog also indicated on storage trailers in the back of the apartment complex and on Victor's work van. Anne and Victor allowed the police in to search their apartment with the dog, and the dog indicated on a curtain which did have some type of stain on it. The police took the curtain and Victor's van in for processing. Nothing was found on the curtain to tie it to Lauren, and it's not entirely clear what was or was not found in the van. It was returned to the company that owned it after it was processed, but nothing as obvious as Lauren's blood appears to have been found. The possible explanation given for the hit on the van was that Victor and Gabby worked for a flooring company. There really was no telling what had been on the flooring they hauled out of these various places. As for the apartment, Victor thought it might be because their cat had died in the apartment, but the dog handler interviewed by the Complicit Podcast explained that cadaver dogs are trained to ignore animals. Otherwise, they would be completely useless for searches in woods and fields. The dog handler thought it was pretty significant that the dog crossed right over to that apartment. 
because these were cadaver dogs. These were not scent dogs. So the dog didn't just pick up on Lauren's scent. This dog was trained to only look for the smell of human decomposition, not a personal scent. So it does seem significant that the dog went right over across the street. However, no evidence was found backing up what the dog was indicating. In August, roughly a month after his first interview, Gabby gave a second interview to the media. But remember how he said Lauren relapsed and I told you the story would change? This is where it changed. In this interview, he denied Lauren was using drugs again. He said he believed that she was actually apartment hunting that day, like she had been the day before, and that someone took advantage of her being out on her own. Lauren was pretty small. She was five feet tall on a good day and 110 pounds. She was also sometimes too trusting of people's good intentions. And that is a theory that definitely needs to be considered. If Lauren was out apartment hunting or job hunting or just meditating in the park on the 19th, something could have happened unconnected to anyone known to Lauren. But it's really just speculation at this point because there isn't any evidence backing it up. There was a little found over the summer aside from what we've already talked about, or at least nothing the investigators have made public. Lauren's father, Paul, had spent the entire summer in Florida just hitting pause on his life back in California because it was so important to him to look for his daughter. But he needed to go back to California for some appointments in early September but planned to be back in Florida within a few weeks. Around the same time, the family was dealt another crisis when Anne had a serious medical emergency. It was on September 14th when Jeffrey, Anne's son, came home from work and found her lying on the bathroom floor incoherent. Jeffrey called 911. Anne was diagnosed with a very bad UTI that was impacting her kidneys, and she had gone septic. She would go on to develop pneumonia. It seems like Anne had been in the bathroom pretty much all day because she was in there when Jeffrey left for work in the morning, but he hadn't thought anything about it at the time. It would turn out that Anne had not been alone that entire day. Anne's sister Sue went to the apartment while Anne was in the hospital and found a note from a maintenance man saying that he would be back to finish the repair later, indicating that he had been in the apartment that day. This maintenance man had entered the apartment to fix a leaking water heater that was dripping to the apartment below. He said he knocked on the door and got no answer, so he used the universal key to get in. After he finished the repair, he went into the bathroom to turn on the sink so that he would push the air out of the pipes. He said he walked in and Anne was sitting on the toilet, bent over. He made his apologies, asked if she was okay, and then locked the bathroom door as he made his way out. He went to the kitchen faucet to clear the line, left the note about finishing the details later, and then left the apartment. But here's the thing. This maintenance man was the same one 
who Lauren had asked about available apartments on the 18th, which was also the same one who saw Lauren around 8.30 a.m. on the last day she was seen. And now he was the last person to see Anne before she was found on the floor by her son. Wondering a little bit about this coincidence, Lauren and Anne's family contacted the company and learned there was no work order for that day. They were told the man shouldn't have been in the apartment without a work order. So Paul took that information, and let me tell you, he really should be an investigator himself because he is very detailed. He decided to do a background check on this maintenance man. It turned out that the man used to live in Racine, Wisconsin. That is relevant here because of someone else who lived in Racine, Wisconsin at the same time, and that was Lauren's boyfriend, Gabby. And now here they were, both in Cape Coral, with their lives intersecting in very strange ways. And this is a point in a case where those rabbit holes and speculation can really spin out of control. One thing I really love about Complicit is that they bring out all the information, but they're not trying to connect all these dots themselves, which is commendable because it's easy to want to connect all the pieces And sometimes when we try to do that, we end up presenting inaccurate information. It's constantly a question of what is just a coincidence and what is something more. And sometimes we get to the point where we are seeing patterns and coincidences everywhere. I will say that Lauren's family sounds like they're pretty reflective and measured in their assessments here, but I also wouldn't have blamed them if they weren't. There's a lot of information a lot of dots, and not a lot to connect them with evidence. And Anne's stay in the hospital brought even more dots to light that, again, we don't know how they connect. Anne was in the ICU, and she was in and out of it. Sometimes she would be coherent enough to have a conversation, and other times, not at all. One time when she seemed with it enough to talk, Jeffrey asked Anne what had happened on the day she collapsed, and she said it had been okay because she was with Lauren. Jeffrey told her Lauren couldn't have been there because she was missing, and Anne said she knew that but insisted she had been with Lauren. He asked her if she knew anything about what had happened to Lauren, and all she said was Michael. Because of her lack of coherency at times, it's not clear who or what she was talking about. The family did look at social media for a Michael that Anne and Lauren may have had in common. Anne shared Lauren's interest in energy and spirituality, and they were in a Facebook group together about these types of things. That meant that they may have a mutual friend or acquaintance named Michael, that the rest of the family wasn't aware of. While they did not find an obvious connection to a Michael, they did find another man who had been in that Facebook group who was arrested in August of 2020 in connection to a missing 21-year-old woman. Now, if you used to watch the live streams I did back in 2020 when we were all stuck home with the pandemic and I had the extra time to do them, You may remember this case because I did cover it back then. 
The case started when a two-year-old was found roaming a parking lot in Miramar, Florida, on July 26, 2020. Tips from the public helped identify him as the son of Layla Cavett, who was from Georgia, and Layla was nowhere to be found. Two days after her son was found, her truck was found in a Walmart parking lot about two miles from the parking lot her son was in. The police staked out the truck, and a man named Shannon Ryan approached it with the keys. He was taken in for questioning, and he admitted to meeting up with Layla, having met her on a previous occasion. He said this time he bought her truck from her, and the last he saw of her and her son was them getting into a dark sedan at a gas station. So what do gas stations have? That's right, they have security cameras, and plenty of them. The FBI were able to pull the footage from the gas station and found no proof of what Ryan said happened. Ryan was charged first with kidnapping Layla's son, but those charges were dropped, and he has since been charged with her murder, even though her body has not yet been found. They do have a significant amount of evidence against him, even though he has denied involvement, and because he is innocent until proven guilty, and deserves the right to a fair trial, I will not be covering the case in depth until after there is a verdict. The connection here is that Facebook group where Shannon Ryan was also a member. So a man who was a member of a Facebook group shared by Anne and Lauren also was arrested for kidnapping a missing woman. However, after checking Lauren's messages and Facebook posts, it doesn't look like they had any communication between them directly. Not only were they not having private messages, they weren't even engaging on each other's posts. It seems like yet another coincidence in the case. The next strange happening that occurred while Anne was hospitalized was in early October 2020. Paul was back in Florida, and there was a rally and a vigil held for Lauren's case, starting with a long motorcycle ride led by her father, Paul, to raise awareness for the case, as well as raise money for the reward fund and investigative efforts. And on that day, while everyone was at the rally, a woman went to the hospital to visit Anne. The family had a list of approved visitors with the hospital, so not everyone could just walk into Anne's room. This person indicated that she was Lindsay, Anne's daughter. Lindsay, however, was at the event. The family still does not know who it was who went to see Anne or why they went as Anne was not coherent enough to provide that information. It seems unlikely that this was Lauren as she wouldn't have even known her mother was in the hospital since she wasn't in touch with anyone. But it does make me wonder if someone wanted people to think Lauren had been there. Or maybe it was just someone who really wanted to see Anne and they weren't on the list. And so it was, from her viewpoint, a benign lie. But it wouldn't turn out to be all that benign. Not long after this visit, Anne tested positive for COVID-19. She had no known exposure as she didn't share a room with anyone. All of the nurses and doctors who saw her were testing negative, and the people on the approved list of visitors were also negative for COVID-19. 
they had to wonder if Anne had been exposed to the disease by this mystery woman. And this was really devastating news given how ill Anne was already. Her body could not fight another infection, and Anne died on October 15th, not knowing what happened to her daughter. Though tips continue to come into the police and to the family, and a lot of investigation has been done, the family is left with most of the same questions today as they had two and a half years ago, with a lot more added on. Obviously, Gabby was looked into extensively, and assuming Lauren was seen on June 19th, his alibi checks out as he was at work all day and his phone pinged from the work site. But not all of Lauren's family believe that the June 19th sightings were accurate, and they want the timeline to be viewed a bit broader. What if Josh or the maintenance man, or both, were mistaken about which day they saw Lauren walking? She walked a lot, so it's not clear to me why they both think their memory is of the 19th specifically, and that it couldn't have been a different day. But per a statement made in December 2020, the police at that point did not consider Gabby a suspect. But that didn't mean they didn't have a suspect. They actually had three. Two of them were Jose and Josh, the men Lauren texted on the night of the 18th. A woman told the police that she was at Josh's place on the 18th, and Jose and Lauren were there as well. She said Josh and Lauren went into Josh's bedroom to talk, but she didn't see Lauren come out. She had left for a bit, and when she came back, Lauren was not there anymore. And if we remember, Josh was also the person who said he saw her walking on June 19th at 10 a.m., the same time her phone was calling Gabby back at her apartment. I'm not sure how all these pieces fit together because if the police are saying Lauren was out with Jose and Josh on Thursday night, then why did Gabby tell Victor he and Lauren were home talking all night? And if something happened to Lauren while she was with them on the 18th, why did Gabby say he kissed her goodbye on the morning of the 19th? There's really no way to tie the 18th to the crime without implicating Gabby. But maybe the theory is that something did happen on the 19th and then Josh made up the time of the sighting to cover for it. No theory of the crime or motive has been given, so it's very difficult to try to figure out the logic behind this. Now, the third suspect named was a man named Carl, who was someone that Lauren dated off and on when she and Gabby would be split up. Two tips came in, pointing in his direction. One woman said that Carl had basically threatened her by hinting about what had happened to Lauren, and then another woman connected to Carl said that she heard Lauren's body was in the Gulf of Mexico. The issue with Carl as a suspect was that he was locked up at the time Lauren disappeared. He had been arrested for tampering with human remains after a woman overdosed, and he allegedly helped dispose of her body. He didn't bond out until after Lauren had gone missing. So if Carl was connected to Lauren's disappearance, his involvement would have had to have been from behind bars, meaning more people are involved. 
And if the police were comfortable enough to name him, I have to assume they have a reason to think he could have done this. So we have Jose, Josh, and Carl, maybe individually, maybe as a combination of two or three of them, all suspects without much more information about it than that. The next major media push on this case was in October 2021, when they thought they were pretty close to at least one answer. A woman's remains were found in Fort Myers, and the police announced that they were consistent with Lauren DeMolo. They announced this at a press conference, but then the body was identified the very next day as another woman named Brianna Tennant. After over 100 interviews and over 200 pieces of evidence, Lauren's family is still waiting for an answer. When Lauren went missing, she was a month shy of her 30th birthday. If alive today, she would be 32. She has light brown hair that she often dyes blonde and has brown eyes. She has multiple tattoos, including an OM symbol, the letters NY, and the word namaste on her side in large letters. If you know anything about the disappearance of Lauren DeMolo, please call the Cape Coral Police Department at 239-574-3223, and I'll leave the number in the show notes. If you would like more information on the details of the case, things I did not have time to cover today, and to hear firsthand accounts from Lauren's family, friends, and the volunteer case advocates, you can find the Complicit podcast in your favorite podcast app, and stay tuned for my interview with Complicit. I want to welcome you first to Crimelines. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, yes. Um, I'm Hillary Wadsworth, one of two co-hosts of Complicit, a true mystery podcast, which is in season one, a deep dive into the mysterious disappearance of Lauren DeMolo. Why did you pick the name Complicit for your podcast? So when we heard about this case, we thought, well, this is strange. There's no way this young woman disappeared on her own. Even if she did, she must have had help. So there's someone who's not talking. There's someone out there who knows what happened, probably more than one person. And at this point, they are, in fact, complicit in her disappearance. So we thought it was an appropriate name for the case and cases beyond. So I am curious, you mentioned when you heard about this case, how did you learn about this case? Because it's not one I've heard before your podcast. It was really social media. It was summer of 2020. It was June, you know, height of COVID. And where you, where are you? You're home, most likely, right? And so we um, we saw a posting from a friend of ours, lifelong friend, Lindsay, who is in Florida. And she had posted that her sister was missing. And we thought, oh, that's strange. Um, so, you know, we reached out for more information. And the more we got in touch with her, the more she told us about everything that was going on in her sister's life up to her disappearance before, things that happened after, um, the crazier the story became. So we just really kept in close contact with her. And then, we, of course, we, we love true crime. Caitlin is my co-host and I. Um, and we had our detective hats on from the beginning, you know, from afar, 
And then every time we would tell our friends or family the story, inevitably, whoever was listening would be like, whoa, this is a movie or wow, this is a book. Uh, and then one day, one of Caitlin's friends was like, no, 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 this is a podcast. And so we were like, okay, yeah, this is a, this is how we can help. We, we can make a pot. We can get it out there. Um, because it, it wasn't a very widely known case locally. Yes, local media was all over it and covering it and local events were happening. But there was really nothing to get the word out there. Um, you know, we've seen the power of the podcast. We've seen your own back. You know, we've heard your own backyard. We've heard serial. I mean, th this could be a very powerful medium uh, with a relatively low barrier to entry. So we thought it was a great way to get involved from the start, tell the story, make it intriguing enough that enough people would want to be invested in the case. And here we are. What kind of access to firsthand accounts did you have? So, I mean, I've already listened, but for my listeners who have not heard your podcast yet, who are we hearing from during these 10 episodes? So we initially heard about the case through our friend Lindsay, who is Lauren DeMolo's actually half-sister. They share a mother. And through Lindsay, we were able to get access to her family, to her father, to her full sister, to her aunt, to friends of hers. Pretty quickly, a community group of just volunteers, search volunteers was set up um, and created a Facebook page, Facebook group, um, which is open. Anyone can join that called Bring Lauren Home. Uh, so we had we had access and it was great because. At the time, too, because nobody really had heard about the case and they wanted all hands on deck and more people knowing the family was super open to opening their lives, opening Lauren's life up to, you know, because you never know what what faction of someone's life will hold the clue to their disappearance. You know, if Lauren rides the bus every day, you know, we need to know who was on that bus with her. Did someone, you know, little things could make a very big difference. So in the podcast, you mostly hear from her family. You hear from the private investigator. Uh, you hear from her friends. You hear from the search and rescue volunteers. So there's a group called Missing in America who's actively involved right now. There's uh, Peace uh, River, Peace River Search and Rescue, Search and Rescue and Cadaver Dogs, and Mike who runs that organization. And so ba basically, people who are very close to Lauren. And close to the case are featured in our podcast. So it's very firsthand. The police have not spoken to us, although they are lovely and will answer our emails. <laughs> um, they won't talk to us because it is an open investigation at the moment. Who have you not talked to who you want to talk to about this case? There are, well, there's one person who we've repeatedly reached out to for comment. And that is her boyfriend at the time of her disappearance named Gabby. We've talked to his friends. We have talked to Lauren's stepfather, who is his um, work partner. Um, we cannot seem to get him to respond to us. And he, we believe is the most important piece of the puzzle because he might have been the last person to see her, might have been, might know that one little piece of information about what was going on in her life, might have been the person responsible. We don't know. We can't, we have no idea until we ask him all the questions we want to ask. Aside from getting publicity for a case, which is 
really important because, you know, without publicity, there's no uh, pressure on law enforcement. I mean, that is one of the functions of the media to hold the government accountable and in the public eye. But do you have a call of action for listeners right now? Like, what is the next step in this case from your point of view? Well, I think locally... If anyone in the Fort Myers, Cape Coral area, you might know that from the recent Hurricane Ian, that's exactly where it struck, actually, that where this case is happening. Um, There are still pretty weekly, if not every, you know, every other week searches going on. We'll all remember from the Gabby Petito case that someone, you know, Brian Laundrie was found in not too far off a main road. Um, you never know where someone could just stumble five feet off of the main road and find some evidence somewhere. So really, if you're local, keep an eye out. But in general, you know, nationally, I think, like you said, I think it's getting the word out, whether it's through our podcast and sending it to the right person for the next set of ears to listen to, whether it's sharing a link on Facebook and Wink News is the local news station there. So they they tend to cover her case a lot, especially on important anniversaries or if new evidence shows up, um, supporting the local search and rescue efforts from afar. Everything can be found on our website, which is complicit-podcast.com. You know, writing in if you're a true crime fan and someone says, hey, what case do you want to hear or do you want featured? Make it Lauren DeMolo. That would be great. I think enough pressure. I think enough time, unfortunately. Um, I think the truth always comes out and it's really just going to be a matter of who who has that missing piece of information. And maybe you're someone you don't even know you have the missing piece of information until you put two and two together and think, oh, you know what? I did see her talking to that strange person and I'm going to go tell the police. So one of the things we do know from the from the local police in Cape Coral is that our podcast is what is generating tips at the moment, which when we heard that, we were just like so thrilled that people who listen are taking the time to contact the police or contact the private investigator so I think just the more ears, the better, the more awareness of the case, the better. It has gotten some great national press. Dr. Phil did a whole hour segment on this case. People TV investigates has covered it, you know, missing in America, like the, the Dateline special has covered it. Um, Callahan Walsh has covered it for investigation discovery. And those are amazing. And then you see a spike in the, you know, in the interest in the case, but then it fades. So I think more consistently getting the name out there put keep will keep pressure on investigators to to figure out what happened and interview the right people in the right way. So looking ahead is complicit it was it was a podcast created for this case. It wasn't that you said let's make a podcast let's find a case. So in that vein are you one and done with a case or are we going to look forward to additional seasons of Complicit that explores other unsolved cases. So you're right. We we created this with the intent of helping to solve the case, and our intentions are definitely still there. In a perfect world, we would have helped bring conclusion to this case before moving on to another case. But we've sort of recognized the power of the podcast, even a 
indie one like ours, you know, it's um, so we love to cover other cases, especially when we have a lull at the moment, unfortunately, in Lauren's case, doesn't mean we're not still in the background doing things and finding out and, and all that digging around. But yeah, no, we definitely want to continue with other seasons with other cases, it will follow the same general format as a deep dive alongside, you know, us sort of narrating alongside people who are close to the case, telling the actual story from, you know, the, the truth, the perspective. I had heard about your podcast as two friends are found out about another, a missing person's case, and they made a podcast about it and it's a fully independent production. And so I went into it with one thing in mind and what I heard was an incredibly polished professional presentation of a case with interviews that were well edited to get to the crux of the matter, not long and rambly. It was incredible. And it was absolutely not what I expected when I heard two friends indie podcast. I kind of thought something a little low budget, like, like, you know, my show, (laughs) but that's not what it was. It's incredibly professional and polished. And I want to commend you for your the detail you put into putting this show together. Thank you. I mean, we we arranged it how we would want to hear a podcast. We're huge true crime podcast fans, true crime lovers in general. Um, thank you for that. I We honestly cannot take all the credit. There is a fabulous company called Resonate Recordings. Uh, shout out to Adam. He is the guy that makes the magic happen. Um, And we work really, really closely with them to get it to a place where it sounds like something we want to hear. You know, we chose music. I mean, much of the music, Adam sort of chooses some of it. And then we write it. We, yeah, it's, I mean, we, we make it sound how we would want to hear it, if that makes sense. It's a great podcast. And I want to thank you for giving me some of your time to talk about the behind the scenes of the podcast. My listeners will have heard a lot of the case, but there's nothing like hearing the firsthand accounts from the family and then to walk through what happened right alongside them, which I think you really capture in complicit. The, that's the goal there. I do want to stress too. Um, you know, we try to get all vantage points if there's nothing in there that we couldn't corroborate further. So we tried very hard to stay source material we wanted to, we don't have an opinion on what happened. Um, and we try to keep it that way. And if something can't be corroborated, it's not in there. So, you know, we've had a lot of information. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of opinions, but we, we really try to maintain just going with the facts and, you know, that, that way of telling the story. I really appreciate that as it is the more respectful way to go about it, especially when not everyone has chosen to participate in the podcast. Speculating about someone who has opted out isn't always helpful or ethical. It's been a journey for me going from my first true crime podcast, which was Unsolved Cases and always had a theory section, to realizing how unhelpful that can be in how I'm giving the, how I'm presenting the case and what I want people to walk away with. Yeah. And I mean, there's any variety of things that could have happened in this case. Um, You know, it's easy to look at the boyfriend, right? And of course he's not talking to us, but also, I mean, there, 
if any you've listened, anyone else who goes on to listen knows, well, there's about three or four other really other strong theories out there. So it's it's hard. You know, people ask us all the time, what do you think happened? And I am very honest and I say, you know, I go back and forth. I can't commit to I can't commit personally. I can't commit. I mean, forget about what we say in the podcast, which is having no opinion. I really I really don't have an opinion until we know what happened. I don't want to put anyone, you know, under a microscope. I I think everyone equally deserves to be under a microscope, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. So again, thank you for your time. And I appreciate you coming on Crime Lines. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.